1: Hello and welcome back to the podcast. It is always up to speed with Formula One here on the Overtime Media Network. Mark and Mark here, Daly and Hamilton back again. It feels like Simon and Simon. It's got like a very eighties cop show vibe, doesn't it? But uh, it works. Or Mark squared, or something. I don't. know. We got to come up with something a little bit catchier. But uh, welcome back, man. How, how's it going? It sounds like you've been having a you've been having a week.
0: Yeah, You know what? It's it's crazy, and I'm sure yours is. And and it sucks, too, because, you know, we're 17 days out from the first race of the season. And this is usually the time of year where I'm soaking it all up. I'm, I'm on Reddit. I'm on Twitter. I'm reading the news stories. And I feel like and I probably shouldn't be admitting this to all of our users, probably a little <laughs> bit more detached from the pulse of the sport than, than I should be. So hopefully today's uh, conversation will be a good way to become a little bit more, more centered and a little bit more balanced. But yeah, man, 17 days. And I think, you know, you and I were just talking about this a couple of minutes ago. So we're an hour and forty-five minutes away from preseason testing Isn't getting underway cool? in rain. So, in awesome. theory, depending on how long we run, we might run into preseason testing. <laughs> so, we might be able
1: to comment on the first couple of minutes. Well, you know, I, I you know, I'd be remiss if I didn't backtrack for a moment because uh, I was having some serious afterthoughts after we did the show. It was somewhat a little bit late last week just because of uh, circumstances. So we did, the, we dropped the last week's show on Saturday rather than Thursday night, Friday morning here in uh, in North America. And we went ahead and did our bracket, our March Madness bracket, with all nine teams except, well, all ten teams except for the Ferrari release, and then that dropped uh, just a couple of days ago this week. But after seeing the Ferrari, I feel entirely justified, and I completely feel relaxed and and, and confident that we knocked them out in the quarterfinals or whatever whatever it was. I didn't feel like. Based on what I saw in that lukewarm efforts, that they deserve to progress any further in our bracket this year. What what are your thoughts on the Ferrari?
0: Yeah, you know what, the same, and and I felt justified. And to be honest, like it was going to have to be something pretty incredible to to kind of force us to go back and adjust our brackets or reevaluate the way we place the teams. You know, I look at it; it's it's a matte finish. I, I I I. I appreciate a red car with kind of a glossy look. Uh, It's a matte finish. There's kind of a basic gradient to a darker red on maybe the back 20% of the car. And then for me, the killer is I, I really don't like Mission Winnow. I don't like that statement. I don't like that association. I don't like the fact that regardless of the reason why i don't like the fact that these tobacco companies are creeping back into the sport and and you know last year it was there the m with the upside down w or the m with the w like it was there but it wasn't as prominent the problem this year is they've embossed it in neon so mm-hmm. you had this neon outline of the mission winnow emblem on the car like on the shark fin on, on the uh engine cover in the side pod like it's not a good look. I don't like the red. It's super underwhelming. Um, to me, it's nothing special. And to your point, I would knock it down. In fact, if we were to redo the bracket today, I'd have to, I'd, I'd have Ferrari play in the, the play-in playing bracket. Round. Like wow. I wouldn't <laughs> even have given them an entry into the tournament. But yes, yeah, super, super, super unimpressed. And like I said, I, I really like red cars with gloss. And I think the Ferraris really pop when they're glossy, especially under the sun or under the lights of a night race. Yeah. This is, Matt, super not cool. I think I feel the same way as you, man.
1: Well, you know, it's a, it's interesting because when we were chatting about it, a couple of days ago, you know, earlier this week, you know, I, I think I texted you something to the effect of in a car or a livery that's supposed to be stunning in its simplicity, this one fell like really short. Yeah. And I mean, if you look at it, it really felt like they just slapped a bunch of sponsor logos all, all over the place. And that uh, yeah. the big Mission Win Now thing on the airbox, like you say, it just uh, really sticks out. So uh, I'm cool with our, our our final two, our final with uh, Aston Martin edging out the, uh, the, the Mercedes W12 yeah i'm pretty i'm pretty happy with the way how it uh, turned out but you know i am super excited that uh, we are literally just minutes away now from the first uh, testing sessions of the year that that that's exciting and when i was looking at it today when i saw that we're 14 days away today on thursday night march uh, 11th here it is on the on the west coast 14 days away from fp1 in bahrain so wow. it, it's starting to get uh, it, it's starting to Get pretty real and pretty exciting. I'm pretty happy to, uh, you know, to, to say or to feel like we're right on the top of, uh, things. But you know, it was pretty interesting. I mean, if you look, uh, at some of the drivers that are going to be, uh, uh, on the track today, we're going to see both, uh, the Mercedes drivers. We're going to see Max Verstappen, uh, both Danny Ricciardo and Lando Norris, uh, out there in the McLaren, both the Aston Martin drivers, only uh, Esteban Ocon for Alpine, which is, uh, you know, I think, uh, <laughs> Pretty lo- you know, logical considering uh, Al- uh, Alonso had that bike accident a couple of weeks ago. Both Ferrari uh, drivers, and we're going to see Gasly and Sunoda uh, out in the Alpha Tauri, and Kimi Raikkonen and Giovinazzi out in the uh, Alpha Romeo. And then uh, we're going to see uh, Mick Schumacher and Nikita Mazepin in the Haas, and then uh, Roy Nassani out in, uh, in the Williams. So, I mean, pretty much the teams are going with their, you know, their, their their top drivers you know not too many reserve drivers or junior drivers out there and uh, well we're not going to see the Mercedes tomorrow or on Sunday but uh, still pr- pretty ex- uh, pretty exciting to see but I mean we're gonna see the the, the Aston Martin guys uh, both uh, Seb and Lance are going to be out there Friday Saturday Sunday and uh looks like they're going to put in some uh, serious miles on that uh on the AMR21 see not, not even first race of the year, and I got that one. Well now. done, well done. <laughs> yeah. I, I would
0: have just said the green car. I, the haven't green got the, car. I haven't got the model numbers rec- uh, memorized yet. I think that's. I think that's a, a really good summary. And forgive me if we're going to get into this a little bit, but for those of you that are kind of newer to the sport, and I think based on what we've heard from a lot of you over the last couple of weeks, especially this whole kind of a uh, new um, ingestion or intake of these drive to survive fans, uh, winter testing is really important. But historically, it was eight days spread over two weeks. So you basically had this huge two-week block where the cars were just piling hundreds of kilometers on the cars. Last year, the year before, it was truncated down to six days, two three-day sessions over two weeks. This year, it's one three-day session over a weekend. And this period is really important for the teams because this is the first time that they can take their cars, their 2021 cars, out to the track and do a meaningful shakedown. So a lot of these teams have had cars on the track, but they've been traditionally for sponsorship reasons. They're out there taking press photos. You know what? They're just getting the drivers kind of acquainted to the cockpit and things like that. But this is the first time that they're actually stress testing these cars, and it's 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 really important because the teams only have three days to do it. And you just kind of knocked on it. Like we're going to be into free practice one in 14 days. These teams have three days in these cars before free practice one. And what's also really interesting about this is when you look past years past, The teams could have both cars on the track at the same time. They can't. So we look at these days Friday, Saturday, Sunday, they're kind of split into a morning session and an afternoon session. So you're basically gonna have one driver in a morning session or an afternoon session. Or in the case of Williams, and I really don't understand what's going on here, is they're only going to execute on one session a day. So they're gonna have Nassani out on Friday, they're gonna have Latifi out on Saturday, and they're gonna have Russell out on Sunday, which means that prior to Q1 or free practice one in 14 days, Nicholas Latifi has one session in that car. Mark one day in that car, which is, and again, he's not like he's a rookie driver and he knows what he's doing, but it's not a lot of time to become familiar with the new cars, especially with the floor changes and things like that. So to me, this is, this is pretty interesting. I'm not saying I want to go back to eight days. Cause I think from a, a media perspective, it's exhausting to spend that much time at the track, but the one benefit that it does potentially have for some of these teams is, and we talked about this the last couple of weeks, the teams are really secretive of their cars leading up to this event. So I think the less time that their cars are necessarily exposed, the better But what we'll also see this year, and they don't like this, is in the past, in winter testing, if they brought the car back into the garage, they would put up the shrouds. They can't put up the shrouds anymore. So it it kind of creates a little less privacy. But, yeah, three days, it's crazy. But at the same time, I'm happy we moved through it. And to your point, we're at free practice in almost no
1: time. I know. It's great, isn't it? And I was just kind of thinking when you were just breaking that all down. So go, we'll put more miles on our car going down to Costco than these guys. Exactly. Will put. exactly. I mean, I'm exaggerating a little bit, but it really is a, a far cry of what it used to be. Even back in, uh, you know, way back in like the '90s and you know years gone by, when they'd uh, test almost uh, unlimited. I mean, they do like uh, you know mid-season testing and things like that. And, uh, d- developing the car, just it's a far cry from uh, from where it used to be. But I, I think it's a it's a good thing, especially in this new era of cost restraint and cost caps and things like that. It just, uh, I I think it's a a good way. And I I think it, um, I wonder if it's going to throw a bit of a degree of unpredictability into the season, especially in the early races uh, for the teams that. may not have uh, ironed out all the bugs and um, but i mean for the drivers like you're just uh, talking about the williams drivers that they're only going to get one session in that car before we hit uh, you know the bahrain grand prix in a couple of weeks you know I, I mean it's one thing to sit there in the simulator and do all these things too but there's nothing like getting in the car and 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 doing the real thing so it's it's going to be fascinating to watch but uh, i i think that uh, the the one thing that really stood out for me is the fact that uh, both aston martin drivers are going to be out there all weekend as well so they're really going at it hard right from the, the the word go, and uh, we'll we'll see how that uh, translate into results, or or maybe not in a couple of weeks. But uh, exciting, it's it's a great uh, time of year. Now, slightly less exciting is the news that <laughs> Alpha Romeo boss uh, Frederick Vassour has uh, tested positive for COVID nineteen, and he's going to miss uh, preseason testing. So, not uh, a great uh, great way for Alpha Romeo to start uh, the the season because uh, you know he's going to have to self isolate and. Uh, you know, he did, uh, he did have, uh, he, 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 uh, tested positive, uh, positive in one test. Then a couple of days later on a follow-up, uh, he tested negative. Uh He's still uh, self-isolating and things like that. So regardless if he gets uh, sick or not, I mean, he does have to self-isolate and that's a, a tough time for, you know, especially a small team like that to, to be missing one of their key, key team members you know, right at the start of the season. So we hope we can get, he gets back to, into action uh, quickly. And I thought this was interesting as well. Uh, Lance Stroll, he's one of the uh, the drivers, one of three guys that uh, were uh, diagnosed with, uh, were tested positive at least uh, with uh, COVID last year. And uh, he actually said uh, he understood. Underestimated how much uh, of a of a toll. Where that, that was a word that he used the toll that uh, that COVID would have on him, and uh, it put, it knocked him out of the the German Grand Prix, and then uh, he said it really affected him for the the, the following two races after that, and uh, he said it was just uh, he had no uh, no energy physically, he was just completely wiped out, and he wasn't even in a great place uh, mentally. I mean, and I, I think sometimes that is a uh, something is maybe uh, overlooked a little bit. Uh, I mean, we all know it, like uh, the um, you know the you know the the, the physical skill. That these guys have and the physical conditioning, but the, the the mental sharpness that you have to be, or have to possess to be a Formula One driver and to react in uh, well, I mean, a, in a split second is probably too slow. But uh, it's interesting uh, that uh, that Lance is admit, uh, admitting that uh, it uh, it really did uh, you know affect him for those uh, couple of uh, races until he really got back and d- he had a really awesome race, obviously in Turkey. But uh, you know, it, it was it was a tough year for Lance. Yeah, particularly interesting, of course, because he's,
0: one, a younger driver, he's supremely active and supremely fit, and it really knocked him off the feet, and and it's not unlike, I think, what we've seen in a lot of the top flights of European football, and even in the NBA over here, where we've had a couple of prominent stars that have been affected with COVID. And it 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 causes a, a serious, serious problem for them, particularly in their ability to get their fitness back and start conditioning. Like we've seen some really prominent NBA players like Russell Westbrook, who's a supremely talented, incredibly athletic player, just get knocked off of his feet. And it took him <laughs> months to regain his step and his bounce and his fitness. And, and in Formula One, you know, maybe we don't see that as much because they're, they're kind of in the cockpit, but it maybe isn't a surprise then that his two results coming out of that german grand prix were pretty mediocre and again i, I think we underestimated as well how important fitness and core strength and cardio is to these drivers and i think that was ultimately the impact so fortunately he recovered by the time we got to turkey as you mentioned but but yeah still a very very serious concern for drivers going into the season right like you know and you'd mentioned as well that that the sport effectively had an offer from the, the Bahrainian government to be provided with vaccinations. And I, I think the sport yeah, decided yeah. that for the sake of optics, that they would wait their place in line, particularly in the UK, where most of the teams and the drivers and the engineers, and the mechanics are based. But again, this is going to be a threat for probably the first half of the season, right? Which is you could have a driver, even a young driver that becomes infected and might miss a race. And even if they return quickly, they might take some time to recover. And I still, I, again, this is very much a conspiracy theory Hamilton comment but I'm still convinced that Hamilton wasn't ready to come back in Abu Dhabi last year and his hand was forced because of George's performance and I don't think in normal circumstances there's any way he would have come back for that race either
1: yeah it really makes you wonder because uh, he, he didn't need to come back I mean the the, exactly. the title had been sewn up I mean there was absolutely under nor- normal circumstances there was no benefit uh, for, for him to come back just for that that one-off race in uh, what was um uh, just really a footnote to, to the season itself. But yeah, I mean, it, it is interesting because, I mean, you do hear these stories in the news quite uh, quite regularly of uh, people that have suffered uh, from, from COVID, the long haulers that they call them, that that are still suffering the after effects yeah. months and months and months after, you know, testing uh, negative and getting over the initial bout of uh, the the illness. Okay, well, let's uh, move along here and uh, we'll go on to this uh, next one before we head into our first break. And this one I think is interesting because um, formulas uh, come out and say Said that they've been having talks with Amazon about uh, TV rights and and streaming and I think that this is uh, absolutely uh, fascinating. I think that this is, you know, I, I think this is a sign of uh, things to come because, uh, you know, I, you and I were talking about it and I, I'm a big cycling fan. I love watching all the classics. I love watching the grand tours. And, uh, you know, you were able to watch the Giro and the Tour and the Volta on on cable TV here until a couple of years ago. I guess, you know, the, the interest here is just uh, too small. But the thing is now I can sign up for one of these streaming services. They, they have a native app in Apple Apple TV, and I can sit down and enjoy it. Uh, you know, I, I don't miss the fact that it's not on TSN or it's not on uh, Sportsnet or something like that, or the, the equivalent. And I think that, um, you know, th- there's obviously a, a pay component to that because, you know, be it uh, Netflix, be it Amazon Prime or something like that, there is a cost involved in that. But at the same time, I, I can't help but feel that a move like this would also potentially help get it out there to more people because, I mean, we, we've heard this, you know, the drive to survive your generation Netflix, right? I think that's where we're going to call these new uh, new F1 fans is Generation Netflix. These people that were exposed to it, but they never even seen it before until they they saw it on Netflix, watched the drive to survive seasons, were instantly hooked by it. And I just can't help but uh, thinking that, you know, if they were able to make it uh, available through one of these platforms, whether or not it would actually indeed expose more people to the sports. It could be a masterstroke if, if, yeah. if, if it comes to pass.
0: It's a no-brainer from a business perspective. You, you have absolutely nothing to lose. And, and you know what? Maybe you compromise some of your (coughs) traditional TV contracts a little bit and i, I think one of the, the the kind of the best scenarios to look at is here in canada um the network that carries formula one races and they do a terrible job they, they don't do a good job they don't embed a lot of customized localized coverage they did in the past with tim haraney where they would have him intro and outro and and do a little bit of commentary and a little bit of color in between segments but they don't do a good job they basically just kind of just throw up the the, the sky tv rights and things like that but in canada um T or uh, TSN was actually out of contract going into last season, and Formula One was desperate to get the F1 TV Pro app um, up and running in this country. And part of their negotiation with TSN was like, understand that this app is going to happen. And I think part of the outcome of that negotiation was that TSN ultimately paid a little bit less, knowing that they were going to shed some viewers. But it also gave. Uh, Formula One, the ability to maximize potential revenue off of what they see to be the future of the sport, which is their app, right? Mm -hmm. Ultimately, for them, driving revenue through the app is preferable. They don't have to do a rev share. They have a better opportunity to capture all the associated revenue. But to your point as well, I think you make a great point. And and I look at a TV bundle or a package like in Canada, typically people some people have uh, direct um, digital satellite, but a lot of people still have digital or HD cable boxes. So in Canada, some of our bigger providers are Rogers in Eastern Canada and it's Shaw in Western Canada. For me, I, I can't stomach the idea of paying $100 or $150 a month for a cable package because at the end of the day, for me, it's like buying and cooking a turkey. There's all this turkey, but all I'm going to eat is a little bit of the white meat and I'm going to throw the rest of it away. <laughs> like I'm not going to pay $150 a month so I can watch a two-hour race every two weeks on TSN. So for me, being able to subscribe to an app like the F1 TV Pro app, it's much more surgical, it's more much more precise, and I'm not getting all of that waste. But to kind of get back to your core question, like I think you're absolutely right. I think as more and more and more people cord cut and it's happening on mass and you've seen networks like ESPN in the States hemorrhage cash because they've been so dependent on the sub fees associated with cable subscribers. I think there's a huge opportunity and I think Amazon's a really good one because if you look at Amazon's subscriber base and you look at the number of people that um, utilize the Amazon Prime video app like there's something there do you know what i mean there's more people in canada today that are uh amazon prime customer than they are enrolled in a traditional cable tv package so Mm -hmm. i don't think there's any harm trying it and you know we've seen facebook do it in the past couple of years where they've been broadcasting localized major league baseball streams we've seen TSN, or we've seen twitter broadcasting nfl like there's no harm here trying it i just always believed and i don't know if it was you i was talking about this like i always just thought that there could have been some symmetry between netflix and formula one and it's been speculated for many years that Netflix might get into the live sports broadcasting. And given that they already have a a relatively strong partnership, I always thought that kind of made sense. But ultimately, I would be excited to see this as well. And I think for some fans as well, this is a way to circumvent the paywall. So in a lot of countries where Formula One has historically been free over the air, if you look in Germany, and if you look in the UK, Formula One is now behind a paywall. Like you have to subscribe to Sky to get it. So Kind of kind of cool. I like it. I like
1: it a lot. Well, the thing is, too, that uh, the, the thing that I found intriguing about Amazon is uh, when, when you look at what, what they have available on Amazon Prime, it's not Netflix. Let's, let, let's be uh, You know, let's No be way. Honest. Not even close. But the thing is that uh, what I see when I look at, uh, at, at Amazon Prime, that uh, th- there's a lot of good content there, but a lot of potential. I mean, if yeah. they were to, I think that they've got something really positive to, to to work with. I mean, they're coming into the game obviously a lot further down the line than Netflix. I mean, they they're they're the granddaddy of it. You know, they're they're sort of the benchmark that everything else is is measured against. And then uh, you know, I, I mean, Amazon is obviously uber successful in other areas. And just to, based on what they've done, it you know, I have to believe at some point that this whole Amazon streaming thing is going to really take off. And whether or not uh, it, it rivals Netflix. Netflix that remains to be seen, but uh, there, there certainly is, you know, quite a lot of, for, of, of room for growth on that platform, for sure. I,
0: I'll just add one thing as well. Um, you're you're absolutely right. It's not Netflix. And I don't know that they necessarily want it to be Netflix. In, in a lot of ways, Amazon Prime Video is a marketplace. Like there's free content on there, yeah. but there's also rentals. And there's yeah. also the ability to bolt on other premium streaming services. And I think for F1, like, hey, you know what? If we throw a couple mm-hmm. of free races on Amazon Prime, but we also bolt on the f1 tv pro app maybe that's a way to get some additional subs because we just to your point we expose some people to races that might not traditionally see it make a few free give people a, a bit of a test and then we give them a pathway to bolt on the f1 tv pro app to their existing amazon prime video account like maybe there's something there and i know we've got to jump to a commercial but i think the last kind of exciting update is formula one announced and again if, if we're going to talk about this later i apologize but Formula One announced that they've done some pretty significant tinkering under the hood of the F1 TV Pro app this year. Um, A couple of big improvements that we're going to see are Android users are gonna be able to Chromecast the content natively to your TV. And for the first time iOS users are gonna be able to airplay the content. So today for me last season, and this sucked, the only way I could see the content on my TV is if I did screen sharing, which Mm. is a garbage experience. This year, this year gonna natively. And then the other exciting thing too is Formula One also announced that they're working on a native Apple TV app, which they're hoping to launch before the end of the season and a native Android TV app. So couple of cool things coming down the pipeline and for the first time they're going to be um broadcasting the content in true 1080p at 50 frames per second. So in prior years, it was a heavily compressed 720p stream. This year is going to be true 1080p, which will actually beat out what you'd be getting over the air with your HD cable box or your HT satellite box, which are all 720p streams. So super excited about
1: that. Yeah, absolutely. That should be really, really cool. And really loving the fact that they're going to come out with like the Apple TV and the Android apps. I think that's a great, great move. We never would have seen that under, uh, you know, Bernie Ecclestone, but hey. It- We've been there there before. (laughs) Anyways, time for a quick break here on the Overtime Media Network. Don't go away. We'll be back in just a moment. Passion, drive, and patience. The formula for winning championships is also what keeps your ride or die alive. eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to make your car the MVP and bring home huge wins. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. All right well welcome back to the show uh it's uh, you're joining Mark Daly and Mark Hamilton again there I I almost got that out uh, somewhat uh, well almost not awkwardly but uh, hey it's been a busy week uh I'm uh, almost uh, keeping my mind uh, together in one piece so let's uh, go for a little bit of sanity and well <laughs> maybe that's the, the best way to talk about this one but anyways silverstone is going to host one of the sprint races um formula one ceo stefano domenicali uh, confirmed earlier this week and i think this is a really really uh, an interesting thing i mean we we talked about the the concept uh, a couple of shows ago about the you know these majors you know we have like these sprint races the friday qualifying the saturday sprint race the main event on sunday you know i i've, I've really come to like that uh, idea and i'm really excited to see how this is going to work you know i know that the you know there's a lot of different opinions out there in the paddock i mean some people seem pretty uh you know uh, welcoming uh, towards it some seem very critical uh, a lot of people say yeah it seems pretty good but we're going to need to n- need to tweak it but i think that this is the, the the ideal time to actually go and try it i was i was a little bit uh, skeptical about it um, you know maybe a month or two ago but i i've really warmed up uh, to the idea and this is I don't want to say this is a throwaway year because it, it absolutely isn't. I mean, this is going to be a, a regular championship, but I mean, all eyes are on 2022, the new formula, the new cars, everything that's going to come in for next year. And of course, that that's uh, you know what we're all excited about. But I mean, if you're going into this new era of Formula One, and you're kind of in the last year of this uh, prolonged formula that we've seen kind of uh, extended over the past uh, several years from 2017 until now, that this seems like the perfect time to trial these sprint races, these these majors, if you want to call them that, with the ultimate idea of, of, of ironing it out and getting a good working format, going into this brand new, fancy, shiny era with brand new, fancy cars, new size tires, and everything like that going into the season in 2022. What are your thoughts?
0: Oh, dude, you know, I I'm so, so excited. And again, like you, I was a little cautious originally going back to January, but I'm so pumped. And, and I think the expectation was that we were probably going to see a sprint race in Montreal, Monza and Sao Paulo. And, and to put one in Silverstone is incredibly exciting. And I just, I think about what that weekend looks like, right? Like a traditional Grand Prix weekend is you have a couple of practice sessions on Friday, nobody's watching. You have a practice session on Saturday morning, midday, nobody's watching. Then you have qualifying on Saturday night, and then you have the race midday Saturday. So you kind of compress the weekend into this like 18 hour, 24 hour period. And Ultimately, no one's watching free practice. Some people are watching qualifying and then everyone watches the Grand Prix. But you think about it now, like the potential is that you have qualifying on a Friday night. So primetime Friday night, or sorry, qualifying on primetime Friday night. Then you have the sprint race on Saturday. Then you have the race weekend, the Grand Prix on the Sunday, like that is must watch TV mm-hmm. three days in a row. And, and that's that's a huge boon to the sport because it draws eyeballs to the TV. But the other thing that it could potentially do as well is sell packages, sell tickets, right? Like when you're buying Grand Prix weekend tickets, like you can buy race tickets for the entire weekend. So you can go every single day, you know, walk around, see the paddock, see the sessions, blah, 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 blah. Ultimately, everyone buys tickets for the, for the Sunday. Nobody's there for free practice. But now you also have this potential where you could charge a premium because, hey, we can do a three package deal. You see you see qualifying, you see the sprint race, you see the Grand Prix. Either way, this is a really smart business decision for the sport because it gives fans more of reasons to tune in on the Friday where no one's tuning in today. Again, on Saturday when you've got qualifying, but in this case, it's a sprint race. So it's going to be even more exciting. And then of course, on the Saturday for the Grand Prix. So I don't think this is going to take away from the Grand Prix. And I think as far as the drivers were concerned, that's what their concern was. Like, will the sprint race detract from the Grand Prix? And I don't think it will. And, you know, we heard last week as well that Formula One has decided, and I don't know if this is official, but it's at least understood that there won't be a podium for the sprint race. There'll be no formal celebration because again, they don't want to detract or devalue the Grand Prix celebration on the Sunday, but super freaking pump man. Like this is going to be awesome. Like I just think about that major weekend qualifying on a Friday night, sprint race on the Saturday, Grand Prix on the Sunday gives us a ton to talk about.
1: Yeah, absolutely, and uh, you know, to be kind of completely honest, the last time that uh, we went to a race, we went to the Spanish Grand Prix. We'd never been to Barcelona before, and it's a wonderful city. It's a fantastic place to go and visit. And uh, you know, we, we had passes for the entire weekend. So Thursday, Friday, Saturday, I guess Thursday, you know, there's the there's the, uh, the ability to walk around to the paddock that you got the practice sessions on Friday. So, you know, we, we were only there. I, I think we were there, I think the entire time, five or six days it was basically the, the 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 race was right in the middle of our stay. And we got to Barcelona, we found out how, what, what an awesome, uh, you know, the place this was. And we realized we only have five, six, seven days, whatever it was now, I can't remember and realized, okay, well, at least two of these days are going to be completely taken up by going to uh to to the track watching the race which was of course the reason why we were there but uh you know if you have like the you change up that format all of a sudden you know if, if you're flying into a, a race somewhere you're you're completely reevaluating how you're going to spend your time but also uh, for, for for everybody that's watching at home of course now all of a sudden okay well you know if, if there's some highlights or something worthwhile that you you could maybe go back and see if there was some video from from the friday like uh, practice sessions or something yeah that, that's that's maybe interesting, but now you you replace that with a qualifying session. You got the sprint race on Saturday. Like you say, that becomes appointment television. You're 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 booking off that hour, you're, you're blocking that one hour off on a Friday night to watch the qualifying. You're you're blocking off that one hour, which you would have spent anyways to watch qualifying on Saturday and Sunday. You know, I, I'm getting excited just talking about it. You know, it just uh, it adds more interest, more excitement over the course of three days rather than that one hour on Saturday and then the full two hours on. Sunday afternoon. It just—I think it really highlights the, the the interest and gives you a reason to to watch.
0: Yeah, totally. Yeah. And, and you know, if I'm the drivers, I, I want to get behind this because this could be potential leverage to fight back against a driver salary cap, right? Like if you're going to ask more of us and we're going to start putting sprint races and we're going to go through the strain and the stress of preparing and competing, like this this could be just negotiating leverage to fight back against the concept of a, of a driver salary cap. And maybe that's already set in stone. I don't know. But if I'm the drivers, I'm embracing this because one, it's a cash opportunity for me. It's more expensive exposure for me. It's more exposure for my sponsors. It's its ultimately a good thing. I think what I'm really curious about is, one, we don't yet know what the prize points allocations would be, if any, because it's also possible that we run the sprint races this season without any points allocated. Maybe it's just a cash deal. Um, but we also don't know what the payout would look like in terms of cash prizes for drivers and constructors. So a lot that's not yet understood.
1: Yeah. Well, that was actually one of the complaints of uh, Andrew Green, who's the technical director at uh, Aston Martin, and said, you know, they want to see a bunch of um, directives or regulations and all they've really had is a a bunch of proposals. And I I can understand that. You know, I think if you're in Formula One, you need like a framework to uh, work within. But this is something that's still developing. They're still, I think, trying to figure it out, work it out among themselves. And I, I, you know, I I think it's maybe a little bit too, too early in the game to have, okay, you know this set of parameters. This is how it's going to look. I think it's going to evolve over these three test weekends to see how it works. And then if you know they're they're going to actually go ahead and implement it for 22, then after these uh, you know we, we get these three weekends under our belts, then they'll they'll know. Okay, this worked. This didn't. This was good. But you know if we make a couple of tweaks here and here then it should be a a lot better and once once you have that data once you have those experiences under your belt then you can develop it uh, further you know codify it put it into uh you know a certain format and then uh you know as long as you don't have like a disastrous rollout like we did with that bizarre qualifying (laughs) room format back when was that in 2016 or whatever that they which they scrapped after only a couple of races and went back to the 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 traditional uh you know q1 q2 and q3 format which uh, actually works uh, pretty good but looking forward to see how it uh that that it uh, definitely gets uh, rolled out. Now that I just wanted to talk about this one uh, because uh, th- this is something we've uh, talked about uh, you know, a couple of times over the the, you know, the past uh, several months, uh, Mark. And this is the whole uh, we race is one thing. The whole uh, diversity uh, initiative that uh, that Formula One is uh, undertaken. So they've um, you know they've explained how that they they want to implement this university scholarship plan to help uh, get under uh, people from underrepresented backgrounds into the support into the sport, help them to complete degree programs and things like that, and it's part of their. Push uh, for diversity. And, you know, my my initial reaction to this was okay, that's great, but I really hope that this is executed uh, properly. I mean, I, I'm kind of really not sold on the whole we race is one thing. I mean, it looks really good from uh, you know sort of a uh, you know a PR campaign, but in 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 practice, I don't know how it's really been sort of rolled out. And you know, I, I applaud them for saying that they do want to see more underrepresented uh, you know segments of um, the, the the population represented in the sport because. I think anybody that looks at Formula One, I think they just see a bunch of like very, very rich white guys going out and racing motor cars, right? You know, and I mean, it has that very, very 1% feel to it, right? And uh, certainly, I mean, it is a sport that could definitely use, you know, a a major dose of diversity to represent the, the, you know, the population and cultures and countries as a whole. I just don't, you know, I, 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 I guess basically what I'm trying to say, I need to be convinced to see you know, is this actually going to be what they, you know, say it's going to be?
0: Yeah, 100%. It's funny, because when I saw this article, I'm like, you know what, on the surface, this is great. But is this just a PR play? And you know what, I, I I was a huge supporter of the Black Lives Matter movement last year. Initially, I was pretty enthusiastic that Formula One was embracing it. I still think they were doing it more as a as a as a PR play than anything early on. They quickly abandoned it as the season went on. And in this case here, like this is a a great initiative if it's meaningful and it's sustainable. You know, Mm -hmm. if you're gonna throw a couple of cash tuitions at a couple of, of lucky kids and then move on. You know what? That's garbage. That's a PR play. But if this is a sustain of, sustainable, meaningful endeavor, endeavor, that's fantastic. But what I can't determine is, you know what? How many scholarships are they handing out? How much money are they are they reserving for this program? Like, I don't know how meaningful this is, but I think it's absolutely the right thing because you know what? I'm sitting here as a white guy that's so late in his 30s, he's scientifically in his 40s. And and even I feel Formula One is too white, like it's uncomfortably yeah. white. And you know, most of the emerging demographics globally aren't traditionally white Europeans, like we are, are people of white European descent. And, and I don't think Formula One does a good enough job of reflecting its future and emerging audience and this is a great way to do that is by encouraging and giving people that have the skills and the capacity to succeed in this field the opportunity to do so you know you reach out you find these folks and you give them that financial passport so they can make the journey the the other piece i want to add on this and you know we haven't talked about this but I am very, very exciting that the W Series has been added as an official support series to Formula Mm -hmm. One this year at eight races. I was very excited when the W Series began in 2019. Um, It was great to see it evolve a little bit last year. Hopefully, it's going to bounce back post-COVID this year in a meaningful way. That's cool. Uh, I think the challenges, and a lot of people, like a lot of my friends and people I interact with, they they always ask, like, hey, when are we going to see a female driver? Like, when are we going to see a female driver in Formula One? It's going to be in our lifetime, but it's not going to be this generation, and the, the reason the reason I say that is that it's the way that they've kind of approached this is, is tough. You've kind of built the upper echelon of a race series. Um, devoted to nurturing female drivers but you don't have any infrastructure below that you don't have you, you don't have a grassroots feeder system you're not encouraging young girls and young women to get into the sport but you've kind of built it at the top which is good but it's going to take five 10 or 15 years to kind of build that feeder infrastructure so you can start developing those kids when they're five six seven just like you did with Nico Rosberg and Lewis Hamilton and Max Verstappen and all these other drivers so I think they're moving in the right direction but I I'm very confident that not even with our lifetime but probably within the next 15 to 20 years we'll see a competitive woman racing in formula one and hopefully more you know we've seen women successful um or at least competitive in open wheel racing before especially in kart back in the late 2000s mm-hmm. we obviously saw danica patrick in japan a number of years ago like the clearly the capabilities there we just need to build the grassroots infrastructure support network to give them the opportunity to start racing and being nurtured at that younger age but all this said if, if f1 wants to invest in scholarship You know what? Do it in a meaningful way. Share how many scholarships. Share the amount of capital that you're putting aside because I think this is the right move. I just hope it's not a publicity move.
1: Yeah, so do I. And Mark, I, I think uh, this is a good place uh, to stop uh, just for another break, uh, maybe a little bit ahead of uh, schedule, because I want to dive into something now that uh, that you really uh, picked up on. I thought it was a rather astute ob- observation, and that was the, the whole Lewis Hamilton contract distraction is, is exactly the word that you used on the last show, was distraction. So we'll get into that uh, right after the, this uh, commercial break. So don't go away. We'll be back in just a moment. All right. Well, welcome back to the show. And uh, just before the break, there I hinted at the fact that uh, that you had really picked up on this a, a couple of days ago when we did the the, the previous episode. I really felt that the uh, at the time, and and you really uh, you know turned me around on the issue that uh, I felt that the the Lewis thing wasn't going to be uh, you know, a distraction. You said no. I, I believe that it is, and uh, you know I, I've come to you know I, I'm admitting it now. I'm going to eat a, a little slice of humble pie here because here we are, only a couple of days later, and the, 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 <laughs> the first article. That that jumped out that said, uh, you know, the headline is Mercedes has no doubts on Hamilton's F1 commitment, and um, this is just uh, one of a couple of stories that have uh, kind of been bubbling up uh, through the surface here over the past uh, couple of days. And uh, you know, it uh, you know we we haven't even got there yet uh, to to the first race of the year. I mean, that the ink is hardly even dry on the 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 deal that he just signed. And uh, let let's face it, I mean, um, and and you've really turned me around on the issue that, uh, yeah, I I mean, it's. As soon as it it broke that uh, he'd only signed a, a one year deal, this just seems like it's going to be uh, it's just going to follow him all the way around. I mean, he may have put it out the you know out of the back of his mind uh, for for the time being, and uh, he may uh, say that it's not going to be a distraction. But uh, you know, uh, it it really is just going to follow him every step of the way. It's going to be there every media session. It's going to be there at every race, and <laughs> obviously, you know, as soon as you hop online, it's it's right there. You Can't hide from it. You know, you look
0: back at what you and I were talking about in November and December leading up to the contract. Like, is he going to sign? When's he going to sign? Is he going to sign? When's he going to sign? It's going to be the same thing this whole year. Plus, yeah. it's going to be like, why did Mercedes not commit to two years? And you know what? You sent me a great link earlier, and, and I'm going to quote Hamilton here. I just wanted one year, says Hamilton. Then we could talk about if we do more and keep adding to it if we do. Garbage. Absolutely garbage. Any driver that's 35 years old is gonna want as much security as possible. The, the thing about Formula One is, it's not like professional sports in North America where contracts are governed by a collective bargaining agreement. In, in Formula One, the teams can do whatever they want, they can be as creative as they want with the contracts. If I'm Hamilton, you know, if I want flexibility, awesome give me a one-year deal with a driver option and another driver option so you know what I have that security for two or three years but I also have the flexibility to opt out of the contract and let the team pursue other options like if if that's what he really wanted was flexibility you know what convince Mercedes in total to give you a deal that's one plus one with an option like I don't know why they didn't do that like he's saying he wants flexibility I'm like I'm sure I'm sure you do but you could have had that with the security of being able to opt out of a second or opt out of a third year deal. Like I I don't understand. And I I think he's talking out of the side of his mouth because he's saying what he needs to say to protect the team. But obviously this isn't the deal he wants or isn't the deal that he wanted. And I don't know if it's because They were so far apart in terms of the value, the annual value of the contract that he wanted to have. I I don't know why we didn't end up, and I think we're probably going to hear more and more about it. But I think you're absolutely right. Every single media session, every single scrum, every single podcast from now until he resigns in December, we're going to be talking about this, and the speculation will increase more if he has a tough season, and it's going to it's going to intensify even more if he has a great season. Like it's just. The team has put him in a tough position. I shouldn't say the team has put him in a tough position because ultimately they may have offered more. It just may not have been with the the annual value that he wanted. And again, this is what happens. Like now here you and I are speculating. Like he only signed (laughs) this contract. Like you said, the ink is still drying and we're already like – crazy speculating about why it wasn't longer so yeah this is a mess and I think it's going to be really challenging for the Mercedes PR team to kind of stick handle throughout the course of the season
1: yeah absolutely and, and I think this was also uh interesting as well was the the, the quote that I saw from from his teammate uh, Valtteri Bottas this week who says he's no in no rush to discuss a new Mercedes contract yeah because well, no one <laughs> you know like <laughs> I, I thought I thought it was cute. <laughs> that he yeah, said I, that, love, I love the
0: way you put that. It's yeah. cute because ultimately you have no leverage in that conversation, and you're just sitting by your phone every single night in your trailer, like, please, Toto, please call me and talk about a contract because I don't think he's going to get one. So yeah. he can he can say those niceties. I don't think there's going to be a contract offered for him.
1: Yeah, I, I really think that, uh, you know, I don't want to say he's kind of reached the end of the, the the line there. I mean, I mean, he's done an exceptional job. He's done exactly what uh, they needed him to do when he yep. was there. I mean, he's yep. been able to, to win some races. He's uh, been driving the best car in Formula One. And, uh, you know, I mean, he's been right there uh, at, at the front for the, you know, the past uh, several years. So, I mean, it was a great move uh, for him. I mean, uh, yeah, I'm sure that when that, uh, that, that move happened after Rosberg retired at the end of 2016, it was just uh, obviously was unexpected uh, on many fronts. And I mean, it just worked out uh, phenomenally well. I mean, but the one thing that, that, that still just uh, I find interesting is that it's always been a one-year deal, a one-year deal. It's just there's been this rolling one-year deal over the, the the past four seasons. And at some point, uh, yeah. you know, it, it has to come to an end, right? I, I, I
0: agree. I, I got to say, though, that when that move happened, like I just and I wasn't at the Mercedes factory surrounded by those 800 people. But I feel like when that signing happened, the. the the pressure that must have been taking off of everyone's shoulder. Cause I think the intensity of the relationship between Hamilton and Rosberg and the fact that it kept culminating in these physical on track incidents. Like I think the tension at that factory was through the roof. It wasn't sustainable. And I think when they brought Bottas in, everyone could, they could sigh a deep breath, right? Like I think everyone felt better, but you know, again, Bottas has been on these one years every single time. He hasn't had a lot of security, but I think to your point, I think his run is done, but at the same time, he's done everything everything that they asked him to do. We just need you to help us win a constructors. We don't need you to win a driver's title. We just need you to help us win a constructors title. And he's done that. So I I don't think they can complain about what he's delivered. But I think at 31, turning 32 this year, turning 33 next year, especially if you've got a talented young driver like George Russell, like at some point you have to make that move. Because as we discussed last week, if you don't make that move with George Russell heading into 2022, you lose him as an option. And then what do you do? Do you keep Valtteri Bottas indefinitely? It's, yeah, it's it's not a good business. This decision.
1: Yeah, especially when it comes to like uh, succession planning in a top team like that, uh, yeah. that uh, you know, you don't really want to plan your long-term future around uh, two drivers, one that's uh, already in his mid 30s and then another guy like you just uh, nailed uh, you nailed it saying you know, he's going into his mid 30s right now and you know, some of these hot young prospects like uh, George Russell might uh, might not be available. All right. Well, let's uh, move on to to the next one. I thought this was an interesting uh, quote uh, from Sebastian Vettel. This is going to take a little bit uh, kind of getting uh, used to uh, Aston Martin driver, (laughs) Sebastian Vettel. Uh, But I I think it was uh, really interesting because he he was asked about uh, the the fact that Aston Martin is a a Mercedes customer team. And there were some questions about uh, the fact that uh, they want to become title uh, contenders over the next uh, three to five year uh, period. Anyways, I'll I'll just read you the quote. Uh, Seb had to say the following. End quote, I'm not worried about that. I think your fears are old school. The world has moved on. I think in the past, probably you were right. With somebody like Mercedes, I think we can trust that you get a very fair treatment. And if you are faster then you are allowed to beat them. As I said, this is the sort of mindset that is way out of date. As a principal. I see where you're coming from, but I'm not worried. If we are very, very close to Mercedes, then that is a good achievement. So it would be the last thing I would worry about, end quote. So that 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 is interesting. and uh, I, I mean I, I don't think that uh I just can't see a world where a customer team would uh, would not be allowed to compete with uh, with Mercedes. I mean, certainly within the team. I mean, we've seen team orders that that's nothing new in Formula One. But uh, I mean, I, I could see maybe back in the day, if a Ferrari and especially if old man Ferrari Enzo was still around, and uh, let's just say that uh, you know one of his cars was being threatened to be passed by the one of the Alphas or one of the Hasses or something like that, then I'm pretty sure that there would be something. Like that, but I, I just can't see in, in, in this day and age how how they could interfere and impose team orders on on, on a customer team. But he, he does, you know, raise a really really good point, and I think it will be fascinating to see that uh, Aston Martin, as a customer Mercedes team, running one of the Mercedes power units in the back of their car, how it's going to match up against the Mercedes works teams the, the, themselves. And I, I think that uh, Seb nails it when he said that if we are as good as or, or quicker than Mercedes, and that's a, a very very good thing so I mean we, we definitely saw some flashes from racing Point uh, last year I mean with the whole pink Mercedes uh, controversy but now when they go into this new era as, uh, as as a works team well I mean it's kind of interesting I mean they're, they're not like I mean they're works Aston Martin team but they're a customer mm-hmm. team because they don't have an Aston mm-hmm. Martin engine in the back it is a Mercedes so the, they're kind of in a bit of a kind of a kind of a gray spot I mean they're they're, they're not really one nor the other so it's, it's going to be an interesting story to watch.
0: I'm sorry, I'm just distracted by this photo of Sebastian Vettel in, in an Aston Martin Formula One car at Silverstone. And we've all seen this photo, but <laughs> it's still so good, especially with the engine bulge that we talked about last week. Oh, the car looks so good. You know, it's funny too, because when I saw when I saw this title, I thought it was more about the functional ability of a customer team to win a title versus a customer team being enabled to win a title relative to the demands of the partner team, the team that they're buying the engines from. And it's funny too, because I'm trying to think back now throughout the entire turbo hybrid era. I think that Mercedes, I think that win that R- Racing Point had last winter in Bahrain, was that the first and only time a Mercedes customer team has won a race in the hybrid era? <laughs>
1: I think it probably would have been. Yeah, it's I mean, interesting, yeah. but
0: I also don't believe, I don't believe that Mercedes would have any issue. Like I, I don't, I, I think if if Aston Martin was to come out and put a more competitive car on the track, I think they would internalize that as we didn't do a good enough job developing our car. And at the end of the day, I think ultimately they're going to be thrilled that any team with their power unit in the back of that car is successful is a good story for them. Um, I also read a really, really, and by the way, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to, I don't know if I did, but I'm going to link it out on Twitter. I read a really good story the other day that kind of broke down the breakdown in the relationship between McLaren, who was functionally the Mercedes works team prior to 2010, and that relationship, but but yeah, I, I don't think I think I agree with Vettel. I think it's kind of old school thinking that Mercedes is going to come down hard on Aston Martin because they're beating them potentially in the constructors' championship. I think that's nonsense.
1: Yeah, that just doesn't uh, compute uh, for 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 me either. But you know, it, it uh, yeah, that, that's a bit of a mind blowing stat that uh, that probably would have been the only time that a Mercedes uh, customer. Team had had won a race in the turbo hybrid era. You know, I, I mean, I I can't think of anything off the top of my head. I mean, there was certainly a, a lot of races that have been won by Mercedes themselves, and I mean, a, a sprinkling of race wins. I mean, Ferrari's obviously won uh, quite a few, uh, well, I mean, not over the past, uh, you know, two seasons, but uh, prior to that, I mean, 2016, 17, 18, they had some uh, pretty strong, uh, you know, uh, runs in there at, uh, at certain times. 2018 was uh, was pretty good, and then yeah. 2019, I mean, there's a, the, obviously a big, big, big asterisk uh, beside that season, the whole power unit uh, controversy there, but... Uh,
0: totally. And And don't don't forget as well that Red Bull was relatively competitive with the Renault engine for a few years. So there were a few years where Red Bull was winning races with a Renault engine and Renault wasn't getting anywhere near a podium, right? So I think that would probably be the closest modern equivalency to what Vettel's speaking about. And clearly Renault had no problem with Red Bull winning podiums because at least somebody was being competitive with their power unit.
1: No, I mean uh, the the issue that uh, that Renault had with uh, Red Bull was the fact that uh, they were always uh, you know moaning and whining about how <laughs> uncompetitive that the Renault engine was but yet uh, they were still able to win uh, the the odd race here and there. I mean Obviously, they, they came out of an era, you know, prior to the, the to, to the the V six turbo hybrid era, where they were dominating Formula One with the uh, Renault engines. So, I mean, that that moaning and whining is obviously understandable to a, a certain point. Anyways, I want to take another quick uh, break here, Mark, and then when we come back, I want to stick with uh, with uh, Aston Martin, and uh, not only uh, am I not used to seeing Sebastian Vettel in that uh, car, but uh, this other picture that I'm looking at of right now, uh, all dressed up in British racing green, that's going to take a little bit of getting used to as uh, well. But anyways, we'll talk about that in just a moment here on the Overtime Media Network. So don't go away. We'll be back in just a moment. All right. Well, welcome back to the podcast. As always, up to speed with Formula One, and uh, we are breaking down all the latest uh, news. And uh, this next story I wanted to, to discuss, I think, is uh, really quite uh, interesting. There's a, a, a couple of um, you know different quotes that I've seen around, but uh, Sebastian Vettel, going into the season, his first year with Aston Martin here in 2021, feels he doesn't have anything to prove to the, all the critics out there, and there, there's been a lot of them who uh, wrote him off, uh, especially after what was a pretty pretty uh, you know dire year last year at uh, for, uh, Ferrari, and uh, he said, quote, I'm not interested in what people think, end quote. Well, I mean, that, that certainly sounds, um, at least on the surface, about a guy that doesn't feel like he gives a bleep about what uh, you know people are saying. I mean, I, I don't think that uh, necessarily he, I mean, he does have uh, something to prove, but I think he doesn't need to prove it in terms of well, maybe he does. I mean, I, I think he still believes that he's got another championship uh, in him. But I think at least at this point, going into this uh, year one of the new Aston Martin project, I think that the, the the focus is not going to be on Sebastian Vettel being a title contender. I mean, if he turns out to be uh, in, the, in the title race this year, I think that's a completely different uh, uh, story. But I, I think I, I kind of understand where he's coming from on this.
0: Yeah, I, let me ask you a question because this is... This is this is the way I look at this. Is this was a driver who was supremely successful in the V8 era with Red Bull. He ran off four straight world championships, unbelievable run. He he concludes his time at Red Bull as they're kind of making that transition to the V6 turbo hybrid. Twenty fourteen is a write off. He goes to Ferrari. He doesn't win a title. Um, Ferrari implodes in twenty eighteen when they had a legit shot. Twenty nineteen was bad. 2020 was a disaster, and that may have been artificial because of some things that we've talked about over the last couple of weeks, but do you feel that his era with Ferrari has potentially tarnished his legacy, or will people look back in 10 years from now when they talk about Sebastian Vettel, do they just look back and associate him with his success at Red Bull, or is that Ferrari story always going to be part of his legacy that he went to the big bad Ferrari and couldn't deliver, and in 2018 imploded, and then Charles Leclerc came and became the dominant driver. And then 2020 was a disaster. Like, how, how do you think the Ferrari experience shapes the narrative that is his legacy?
1: Yeah, you know that that is an interesting one. I mean, that's certainly something I've really thought about uh, a, a lot, and I think definitely it's taken a bit of the shine off of his uh, career. I mean, especially when when Charles came in in 2019 and was competitive r- right off of the bat. Uh, you know, right from the very first, uh, r- right from the very first race. When I mean, it was obvious in in in, uh, in Australia that they implemented team orders because I mean, Seb was not as fast as uh, Charles was even in that race, and then you go to Bahrain. I mean, he he should have won. That race if he didn't have the mechanical gremlins yeah and if we didn't have that bizarre double Renault you know DNF right at the the last couple of laps that brought out that safety car he wouldn't have even been on the podium so I mean that was there right from the the, the very beginning and and that controversy that discussion kind of that that went all season long right up until Monza when you had on the opening lap, Sebastian uh, spun out, uh, I think it was in the Ascari curve, then collected Lance when he came back onto the track. And then Charles goes on and uh, he he wins uh, the, the Italian Grand Prix for the first time in, what was it, 20 years or something? Yeah. Fighting off not just Lewis Hamilton, but uh, Valtteri Bottas. I mean, you had both the Mercedes boys, you know, tag teaming him all race long. And th- there was no more discussion at that point that that was not Seb's team uh, a- anymore. But I mean, obviously there was going to be a little bit of time to um, kind of settle into the team. You know, the, the, the first year or two, they were sort of um, on the rise again. Certainly in 2017, there were signs that maybe something special was happening. And then 2018, it looked like it was on. It looked like that these were, that this, that it was going to happen. It looked like they had a legit shot to, to, uh, to you know, to, to, to win the championship, maybe two championships uh, that year. And then, like you say, I mean, in that last third of the season after the summer break, it really just imploded. I mean, he had a really, really good race. It was in Spa, wasn't it? That he he beat yep. Lewis Hamilton. Yeah. And then Singapore happened, and then there was just uh, you know there was too many of you know those moments uh, that uh, that he, he, I think he's been a little bit uh, you know renowned for over the past uh, you know a year or two, where you know he you know he's collected uh, you know uh, other drivers or done things that you wouldn't expect uh, you know a guy that's been you're right up at the pinnacle, right up at the top there make these uh, sorts of things. So I mean, he's gonna have those. uh, critics, I mean, certainly he may feel that uh, he doesn't, um, you know, have anything to prove to them. But I guess uh, it really, I, I think, you know, if you're Sebastian Vettel is just, uh, you know, I think you have to ask yourself, like, like, what are you trying to prove? Like, are you trying to prove you're still good enough to be in Formula One? Are you trying to prove that uh, you're still, uh, you know, a, a title contender? I mean, you know, there, there's, you know, I, I think it's kind of a vague statement. Uh, yeah, I mean, you, you can say those things, but there, there's a, a number of different ways you can split that one.
0: Yeah, I, I I really agree with with what you're saying, and obviously 2015, 2016, they were they were relatively transitional years when he came to Ferrari, and and I think I think he would be excused for his performances those two years because Mercedes was just off the chart performance wise, yeah, off the chart downforce, traction, uh, power delivery, everything about those cars was absolutely unbeatable. But I think you make a great point. Like you look at 17, he's right there right there up until Singapore, and then it all falls apart. And then in 2018, he's right there until maybe the last third, the last quarter of the season, and then he just drops off. And I think it was disappointing because you're right, like they could have won two championships in 2018, not just the one. And then, like you said, 2019 was a disaster, not just because of his on-track performance, but because of the – the very public relationship with LeClaire. And again, it wasn't a Nico Hamilton level of venom and vitriol and poison and toxicity, but it wasn't good. And 2020 was a disaster for all the reasons that we've spoken about. And I talked about this last week, like, Aston Martin is this unbelievable opportunity for him to resurrect his career and his legacy. Mm -hmm. And I don't think he needs to win a championship to do that because I don't think anyone reasonably expects that this car and this team is going to win a championship, but if he can be competitive and he can win a race or win two races or collect a handful of podiums, I think that will go a long way to massaging and glossing over what we saw during those last couple of years at, at Ferrari.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think so. But, you know, it really would make a compelling story. If we see like a Braun-like uh, performance from Aston Martin this year, it would, you know, honestly, it would be a feel-good story. I think it would be a, a great for a story for Formula One if uh, they came out and did in 2021 that Braun GP did way back in 2009. I mean, because that, that was astounding. I mean, nobody expected them to do what they did. And I mean, Jensen rode that all the way to a, a world championship. And I mean, it was, it was, it was, it, it was such an outlier and it was such an unexpected thing that happened that year. I mean, you know, I mean, it's, it's just one of those moments in modern Formula One that, um, you know, if, if I say, Two thousand and nine Formula One World Championship, two thousand and nine season. What what is the first thing that's going to pop into your mind? Is that 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 beautiful bronze uh, car with the, the the white paint on it, with the, the the black and that sort of lime green trim on it, yeah. and just uh, how phenomenal that car was, and just uh, like literally they caught everybody uh, by by surprise. I mean, if- the
0: absolute the absolute best thing that could happen to Formula One this year is somebody that other than Mercedes wins the championship. yeah, The absolute best thing that could happen for the sport. And I think the team that's maybe primed to make that run is possibly an Aston Martin. They have the right power unit. They've made the right investments in the car. They have a world championship driver. Like It would be the best possible narrative and story. Like, hey, the, the Mercedes dominance is over, heading into a new era. You have this resurgent team. Like, it would be... It would be the best possible case. Like I, I, And I want it and I pray for it because it's good for the longevity of the sport. We just don't need, the sport doesn't need another dominant performance from Mercedes because, you know, Tim Haraney, who's a media personality in Canada, does a lot of official F1 coverage. He's F1 accredited. He has a great relationship with a number of F1 drivers. His biggest fear is F1's done this really great job of nurturing this new demo and this new base of F1 fans. His biggest fear is that we turn Turn them off really quickly. They come in, they see this sport for three years and they see nothing but Ferrari dominance, a lack of parity, a lack of competition, and we lose them again. So his fear is that we don't turn it around quickly enough Mm. and we turn off all these people we brought into the sport. So we talk about the drive to survive generation. You know, I think it's a novelty, right? Like the first couple of years, like, yeah, Mercedes, they're just the good team. But by year three, it's like, this is it? Mm. They just win every single race? Like, that's not a good story either.
1: No, no. I was also thinking too. We we have to come up with a good name for the for those people like net, Netflix doesn't yeah, roll yeah, off yeah. the doesn't roll off the tongue very well but yeah no I mean that that's obviously a, a very legitimate point uh, that uh, you know it could be uh, very repetitive and if uh, you know you're, you're new to the sport and you, you've got come in with the expectations then I mean the the job that they've done to really present uh, Formula one really puts it in a, in, in a very appealing and, and very attractive uh, way but I mean if all the results and uh, you know from, from you know, i I mean they're they're not winning uh, 23 races uh, out of 23 races every year but I mean they're still winning a significant uh, you know Portion of the 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 races that we have on the schedule, so yeah, that would be uh you know, re- really turning things off. But um, you know the the other thing I was thinking of too is when you're just saying you know it would there be this great story about uh, you know Aston Martin, you know they also have the, the the Mercedes engines, but I was also thinking you know you also have McLaren in the background saying hey guys we have Mercedes power too. What about us? But yeah. you know it, it will it, it really is interesting to see where they might be in terms of uh, Mercedes and Aston Martin, but kind of based on the um, you know what we saw at time, uh, last year from the Racing Point RP20, that maybe if there was the potential for a team to kind of maybe come out of left field to a certain uh, extent, that maybe that Racing Point slash Aston Martin maybe has a, a bit of a shot at that.
0: I think that, you know, it's funny. I've been thinking a lot about this. I think, and we talked about this right off the top. I think that the three-day winter testing is going to be really problematic for McLaren. They need as much time on track as possible. They've just wedged a Mercedes power unit into a car that was effectively designed for a Renault for power Renault, unit. Yeah, now. Yeah. We saw a team work miracles in 2009 with the Braun car, uh, but ultimately, I think that team's gonna be the one that struggles. But you know what could be really, really helpful to Aston Martin this year is if we saw a resurgent Ferrari. If you had a resurgent Ferrari and suddenly you had three or maybe four teams that were fighting over championship points and fighting for podiums, like it could be conceivable that the best possible outcome for Aston Martin is if that becomes a four-way race that you have four teams fighting for podiums and fighting for championship points because i say four-way because you know red bull won some races last year with that honda power unit they're going to yeah. win a couple races this year especially with the length and schedule i i think i think to increase the parity at the top would possibly be a good thing because i think one for one i i don't think aston martin has enough to compete with mercedes over the course of a schedule. But if you throw in a wild card that is Ferrari, anything's possible. So,
1: yeah. Yeah, you know, Ferrari, that I think calling them the wild card for this year is such a brilliant way to put it because they are the big question mark. They are the great unknown because, I mean, that, uh, that, that, uh, you know, little slip that Mika Salo made in that yes, Twitch yes. stream thing the, the, the other week. I mean, you know, it's the, the thing that I find so interesting about that. Uh, what was the fact that he, he said that they had this, uh, this artificial, uh, you know, penalty imposed on them in the form of this uh, restricted fuel map. And, uh, but, you know, that was, I mean, fascinating the way that that just sort of slipped out in the conversation. But the, the wall of silence, you know, the, the silence just surrounding that is, is, has been deafening. It's like nobody said, oh, you know, that, it, it, you know, it didn't happen. Nobody's tried to discredit him. It's, 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 it's sort of very quietly become like a, a non-issue, which it was potentially, it was something that could have been, I mean, it, it was something that we thought was extremely explosive. It's just like, well, really? Is there something to this anyone? anyone anyone, hello and it's just crickets it's crickets everywhere so so i tried to do a little bit of digging on that one and
0: what i've learned is that it was an open secret within f1 circles that the teams knew and a lot of the media knew but the media in an effort to protect their position within the sport didn't want to report on it and haven't wanted to ask those questions so unless they're boxed into a corner they're not going to address it because to your point i thought it was going to lead to a flurry of questions from the media like what is this true is this true is this true but by all accounts it was a relatively open secret amongst the teams and the media and you know i i've talked about this before the f1 media is very insular you know what they travel with the teams there's only 10 teams there's only 20 or 20 drivers, they desperately need all the access that they can get to be effective when it comes to covering the sport, and they don't want to burn bridges, and they don't want to burn relationships, and they're not going to put themselves into a position where they could potentially lose access, and the understanding is there was a threat that they could if they reported on this, <laughs> so people have tried to, and not to be too conspiratorial, but I honestly believe, like, especially if you look at the, the F1 media, they don't they don't ask a lot of hard-edged questions, they, they let some more pressing issues die and i think it's just because they don't want to lose their access um but i think it was an open secret and people don't want to press that one because they don't want to upset ferrari so i think it's a well-known thing and and i i think we'll be proven right if they come out today in a couple of minutes and they're super competitive and they start putting down crazy lap times we'll know right away like hey they didn't <laughs> just recover this power through through aerodynamics like it was there last year it was just artificially restrained through an engine map
1: Okay, well, uh, we're going to take one final break here on the show, and while we do that, I'm going to go and get the uh, the, the tinfoil and sit here and uh, ra- you know rant on about uh, mainstream media conspiracy theories. <laughs> so we'll have a little bit of fun with that, uh, but uh, just joking. Anyways, we will take one final break here on the show, and then when we come back, we still a couple of topics uh, to talk about, and where better to start than uh, Ferrari conspiracy series than or theories than to actually talk about uh, Ferrari themselves, and we'll do that in just a moment. So don't go away. We'll be right back. All right. Well, welcome back to the show. And yes, uh, just a, a couple of more stories uh, to get to uh, before the end of the show. And uh, Charles Leclerc said that he says uh, spent more time than he ever has done uh, before over the past uh, couple of years at uh, Ferrari uh, at the factory in Maranello in his preparations uh, before the season. And you know what? I know he's a young guy, but he is the man. He's the guy at uh, Ferrari. And, uh, you know, that's what you got to do. You got to put in the work. Uh, you got to put in uh, all that effort and everything like that. And I mean, if he wants to be... You know, uh, you know, competitive at uh, Ferrari if he wants to be, you know, world champion. I mean, these are just the sort of things that uh, that you know, that you have to do: work with the engineers, get in the simulator, do all these different things. You know, do d- you know, play play Formula One the way that Michael Schumacher did, right? That uh, just to attack it uh, from all those different things. From you know, working with your engineers, the fitness, wh- whatever it is, you live, eat, breathe, sleep Formula One. And, uh, you know, if that, that means throwing up a cot in the corner of the factory at Marinello, then, you know, you know to, to win a world championship, uh, then maybe that's just what Charles needs to do.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I don't have a lot to add here other than the fact that, you know, we talk a lot about Sebastian Vettel and his time with Ferrari. Let me be very clear that nobody ever challenged his commitment to that team. Nobody yeah. ever challenged the amount of time he put in on the simulator, the amount of time he dedicated to his fitness, the t- amount of time he put with his engineers and the mechanics. He, he put in everything that he had just like he did at Red Bull. And I think you're absolutely right. If if Charles Leclerc wasn't doing that, he better be doing it and he shouldn't be praised for doing it. Like my expectation is that if you're a Formula One driver, one of 20 in the world, Mm -hmm. one of 20 in the world and you're racing for Ferrari, that should just be an absolute expectation. And you need to do it because you are the the de facto number one driver. And you also need to set the standard for call off signs because he needs to follow in your footsteps. But I I don't think he needs to be praised for this. I think it's just needs to be the expectation. And I'm sure he worked hard last year, but especially in the absence of Sebastian Vettel, the team needs him to be laser focused because they need him to be able to understand every single possible driving dynamic of that car, because he needs to be the one feeding them feedback so they can improve it over the season.
1: Yeah, you know, that's uh, very interesting. I mean, I, I don't want to take away or make uh, any suggestions, uh, you know, otherwise about uh, Charles Leclerc. But I mean, that may be something to a certain extent that uh, I, I don't want to say it's to be a handicap that might be a little bit uh, too too much. But I mean, you know, I, I mean, compared to, uh, you know, a guy that's a four-time world champion, he's been in Formula One for a very, very long time. And his former teammate, uh, Sebastian Vettel, here you have a guy that's only got a couple of years of Formula One under his belt. And um, you know, I mean, certainly what he can give the engineers in terms of feedback and uh, and things like that is valuable. But certainly, you have to think that perhaps to a certain degree that um, th- that his age may. You know, may factor into that uh, a little bit. I mean, uh, certainly as he grows older and as, as he matures as a driver, then, uh, you know, he gets more experience under his belt. I mean, whatever he's going to give them is going to be valuable. I, I guess what, what I'm trying to say is that, you know, the, the more experience and time he has under his belt in Formula One, the more that that's going to be, uh, I think, more valuable to, to to the team. I'm not suggesting that uh, that it's going to be, uh, you know, <laughs> that he's not going to give them uh, anything. as uh, The car doesn't drive good and it'll be, well, why Charles, uh, you well, things right you know yeah. I mean not like that at all I mean uh but uh, certainly it kind of makes uh, makes you wonder because you know you've gone you, you know you, you had one really experienced driver now you got two pretty young drivers in the the, the biggest team in Formula One so I mean they, they've taken a pretty big uh, gamble but you know I, I mean everything that I've heard about Carlos Sainz is that uh, you know has been pretty positive and you know he's, he's very focused in that, uh, that that aspect as well so it'll be very interesting to hear how these guys function within the team and also uh, you know how they work with the engineers and things like that so just one of those other little stories in Formula 1 that's uh, kind of interesting and also uh, what I thought was interesting was uh, for Ferrari team principal uh, Mattia Bonato said this week that uh, he feels that uh, despite all the time in the simulators and some of these outings that uh, that uh, Carlos has had in some of the older cars that uh, that they can run that uh, you know it, it's given him exposures to the way that uh, they do uh, pr- the certain procedures they have in the team how they operate and things like that but he said still having said that uh, that he doesn't think that he's going to be fully, you know, hundred percent integrated into the team uh, by the time uh, you know we we hit the ground running here at Bahrain in a couple of weeks, and I, I can see that to to a certain extent. I mean, it seems like a really really long time now since we we learned that Carlos Sainz was going to be replacing Sebastian Vettel Ferrari this year. But still, I mean, just just because it's been almost a year since that was uh, made public and made known, doesn't mean that 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 uh, you know he's actually been in that car and driving it. So yeah, I mean, it's it's there's going to be a certain uh, amount of a uh, period of adjustment and i i certainly hope for carlos's uh you know sake that he's he's still not struggling to integrate you know four five six eight races into the season but uh, I, I don't think he will i mean uh just uh, the the fact that uh, we we talked about off the, the 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 top of the show that you know there's less t- testing uh, this year than in other years yeah there, there's less opportunity too but i mean he's not the only one that's going to be facing that challenge this year yeah, absolutely
0: not. And and I really don't have a lot to add here, but I think one of the drivers that's going to have some I don't want to say struggles but I think one of the drivers that obviously could have benefited from an extended winter testing season is is Carlos Sainz because to your point it feels like an eternity since he's been linked to Ferrari and he'd officially signed that contract because really he'd signed that contract before last season even began so he still had to conclude an entire calendar with uh, with McLaren despite the fact that it was known he was going to Ferrari I I think the benefit in his case is one this isn't the first time that he switched teams right like it's not like he a young driver that's only been with one team or he's an older driver that's been one, with one team for, for 10 years. Like he's, he's been with Toro Rosso, he's been with Renault, he's been with McLaren. This is effectively the fourth time he switched. And By all accounts he's easygoing, he's approachable, he's accessible, he's charismatic. I don't think there's going to be any issues integrating in, into the culture of that team. I think it's more about building familiarity and trust with his key advisors and his engineer and that might take a little bit of time, but I think more sure, importantly yeah. it's about him becoming Familiar with the car, and three days in Bahrain isn't enough to to achieve that. So I think he's going to have to learn fast and hard as the season fast approaches.
1: Yeah, absolutely, and uh, I want to switch now from uh, Ferrari to uh, Alpine because uh, th- this I thought was interesting. They said that they are open to uh, you know adding a partner team in Formula One, and uh, that this doesn't surprise me as much uh, that the fact that they want to supply engines to somebody else, but I find uh, that uh, you know it's it's a bit of a shift in what uh, you know w- where they were this time last year under their former team principal Sergio uh, Bobul, right. who basically said, yeah, well, you know we're good, we're in a good spot if we don't have to supply engines to anyone else and we don't really need to. But I, I find it interesting that now, A, they are, and B, the terminology partner team rather than, say, customer team. I, I find the language very, very interesting, Mark. Yeah, I
0: totally agree. And it's funny because I was uh, I was out running earlier today, and, and I, this entire scenario was playing through in my head, particularly about that they had this shift. And I also think it's kind of funny that in the past... The media was leaning into a team principal for commentary on whether they wanted to have a customer or partner team. Ultimately, I don't think that's a team principal decision. I think this is a board level direction at the yeah. highest levels of Alpine Reno. You know what? This is this is a major financial transaction. This isn't something that we're going to allow the team principal to to ultimately decide. I, I guess I guess ultimately the question is who is that team going to be? And and if you look at the if you look at the teams right now, you got to think that Haas, for all the reasons we've talked about, and, and Sauber are are deeply embedded and very comfortable with Ferrari for all the reasons that we've talked about. Ferrari is sharing a ton of resources and people capital with Haas to keep them afloat. We we know what the the Sauber, Alfa Romeo, Ferrari linkages are. I don't imagine any team would want to divorce themselves from from Mercedes. The one story that I did read a couple of weeks ago, and it was purely. Speculation on the part of the journalist is possibly a Williams link up. Mm-hmm. And and Williams, you know, they've been running that Mercedes power unit since the beginning of the turbo hybrid era. They had some initial success in 2014, they had that podium in 2017, but ultimately they just haven't been able to build a competent package around the power unit. But ultimately, if LP and Renault could make it financially appetizing for them is that is that a possible match but at the same time if you're a and you just took over williams and you want to make this team competitive is that the right business move like we have the best possible power unit we just need to build a better package does it make sense that we still need to build a better package but we still need now we have to build a better package around a less capable power unit like i just i don't know and i like to think about it but i don't know who that partner team would be like what, what are your thoughts
1: yeah, well, I, I mean, this uh, this scenario has kind of played out in my head as well, and and, and to me, I mean, the, uh, the 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 Williams link is the, the the one that really sort of stands out. Uh, I mean, there's the the historical link, uh, like yeah. you mentioned, great one, and the fact that, uh, like you very uh, you know accurately astutely uh, you know mentioned as well. I mean, uh, the Ferrari is just so intertwined with Haas and uh, Alpha Romeo. That, uh, you know, it, it's kind of hard to tell where, where one ends and the other begins. Yeah. yeah. I mean, they're, they're just, you know, the, the, the link between the Ferrari and those two customer teams is really, really tight. So, I mean, when, when you kind of just do the mental math, I mean, Williams is the one that, uh, w- you know, whether or not it happens is a completely different story, but it's the only one that really sort of makes sense. No, I mean, but I mean, the other thing is uh, that you also so uh, you know uh, that that you uh, you know hit on rather uh, you know uh, accurately as well is that does it make sense from the point of view to switch from Mercedes power to, to something yeah. that, uh, that 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 isn't and uh, that is you know the big big question is whether they'd be willing to take that risk. But you know Williams, I think uh, this year is in a, you know a much different uh, place than they were a year ago, and I, I think that one of the things that 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 really it, it was really quite sober. I thought when I, when I read the news earlier this week is that they're actually heading to Bahrain to, for testing with an upgrade to the car now this might not sound like a big deal but uh, you know especially to the um, say people that have only just been watching Formula One for a year or so but it, it's not that long ago that this was a team that was struggling to get the car to the track in Barcelona for preseason testing and when they got there they were late so I mean the fact that they're they're there, and they actually have an upgrade to uh, to to put on the car before the, you know, we even get to testing. Says to me, okay, things are changing there. You know now whether or not that uh, results in some real quantum leap in the performance of this car and it's going to you know pull them off the bottom of the uh, you know the, the the grid and and move them up into you know some sort of competitive uh, stature. I mean, completely remains to be seen, but they are doing something there, and uh, you know I wouldn't I I wouldn't be surprised too if they. they. They, you know, they made a switch just because I I think that uh, they, I think they realized the new management uh, realizes that, okay, if we want to drag this team off the bottom of the grid, perhaps we're going to have to take some uh, risks. We're maybe we're going to have to take some big ones and maybe we're going to have to take some other orthodox risks. Now, whether or not you would, you know, have the stones to actually say, you know what, you know, I I really don't think I need a Mercedes, but I think I, you know, we could be successful with a Renault engine. I mean, it would be a master stroke. It would be, pure brilliance if they could uh, you know pull that off and succeed with uh, something that isn't a, a you know a mercedes power unit but you know maybe that's what they need to do maybe they need to be brave maybe they need to be unorthodox because uh, you know they've been stuck in the deepest of ruts
0: the romantic in me would love this, and you know we talked <laughs> yeah. about this last week. That if you look at the current livery, especially with that splash of yellow, it harkens yeah. back to the '90s. And again, for a, a lot of our our newer listeners that may not be familiar with Williams as a competitive team, they they had an engine partnership with Renault back in the '90s. And I'll just read this off for you because I think this is interesting. With their Renault partnership they won the constructors championship in 92 there you go for our for our youtube listeners there it is they won the Constructors' Championship with Renault in 92, 93, 94, 96, and 97. And then they won the Drivers' Championship with Renault in 92, 93, 96, and 97. So there is a supreme history of success between those two teams. And you know what? You, you kind of hit it on as well. Renault scored a couple of podiums last year, the first since they returned as a works team. What's, not to, say, what's to say that they aren't able to develop a power, a competitive power unit. And the other thing too, is that as the engine regs change and as we start seeing the cost cap imposed, maybe the relevance of having that Mercedes power unit is less and less and less important ultimately. But I, I would love to see it, but this is the only one to me that kind of makes sense. That kind of makes sense that if they're looking for an existing team on the grid that they could partner with, this is the only one that seems to make sense.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And uh, for, the, for those of you listening on the podcast, what I did is uh- uh, you know here on my desk i actually have uh, you know a 118 scale it's an fw uh, what was it 16 or 18. Let me just uh, double check. I couldn't read it in the light. Yeah, FW eighteen. So that was the nineteen ninety six Williams, and that was the uh, the year that uh, Damon Hill won the, uh, the, the the world championship. And I mean that that is one of those classic looks. And I mean, right on the side of the engine cowling is uh, is Renault. So I mean, they they do have that historical partnership. I mean, uh, uh, Yasta Capito was uh, with uh, with Williams now. He believes that they can uh, yeah, they they can. I, I guess model or re- the, the revival similar to what uh, McLaren has had, but I mean, uh, you know, the, the tie up with uh, Williams Renault is uh, tantalizing because of the, uh, the, the, historical partnership. I mean, if Capito, you know, the, the, the new Williams CEO wants to uh, model that, uh, that, uh, that uh, revival that uh, McLaren's had over the past couple of years, maybe has to remember, maybe took a look at, uh, that, that McLaren Honda partnership, although, you know, that it looked really great on paper, didn't really work out uh, so well, but I mean, I am Renault is obviously in a much uh, different uh, position than uh, Honda was, uh, you know, four or five years ago in in, in Formula One. But uh, certainly, um, yeah, I, I think that uh, that they may have to make some very brave and uh, unorthodox choices to drag this team off uh, the the bottom of the grid. But one thing that they've also done that I think is uh, really really good and beneficial is that uh, they've added uh, 2009 uh, Formula One World Champion Jensen Button. You know, we talked about him a, a little bit uh, uh, earlier. He's uh, going to be taking up a, a senior advisor. Role with the the, the team, and uh, I think a guy like uh, Jensen, I think uh, that that's really good. I think that uh, I think he's uh, you know he was a very successful, very good uh, Formula One driver, and I think this uh, you know I, I think it uh, ticks a number of boxes uh, for me. I think it's a good role for Jensen uh, to have, and I think uh, you know just uh, you know the, the kind of uh, driver that he was, I think that uh, he could uh, bring something ve- very valuable to to, to Williams. And they need people who know Formula One and know how to be successful in Formula One. And uh, even though he may not have been in the cockpit of a Formula One car recently, I mean it's been a couple of years. I mean uh, he he knows what it takes uh, to be successful driving one of these cars. So I think that uh, he may be an interesting sort of gap or bridge uh, between George Russell and Nick Latifi. I think he he might be an interesting sort of piece in the puzzle, just to to, to put it in there. I th- I think that to having him around would be very beneficial for George and uh, and and for Nick.
0: There's no harm in surrounding your drivers with world champions and that and that ultimately is what Jensen Button is he is yep. a Formula 1 World champion. He also has a world of experience. Like this is a guy that started with Williams. I think back in 2000, he had yep, he had a long career. When, as far as I'm concerned, his career ended in Abu Dhabi in 2016. <laughs> I, I I put that 2017 Monaco Grand Prix fiasco out of mind. As far as I'm concerned, his career ended at the end of uh, 2016. But ultimately, like I don't think it hurts. And, and the other benefit of this guy is he is relatively humble as far as world champions go yep. but he's clearly very articulate he's approachable he's accessible i think he's a great personality to surround your young drivers with one they can ask questions and i don't think this is a guy that's going to be at the factory 40 hours a week that's going to be traveling with the team but i think just making him accessible to their drivers is a good thing but it's also good a good thing for the team to put somebody like that in the factory and around the team because it instills this sense of competence and and confidence that they don't necessarily have right you, you look at the bodies they they brought in patty Lowe and, and that was a disaster and he was gone and you had Valtteri bottas and he was a capable driver and then he was gone and like there's just been so much churn from a, a driver perspective. It's so much churn from a leadership perspective that I think it's really great that you bring in a pillar like this. And, and obviously Frank Williams had been there for a while and he'd been a part of some champion, all of the championship teams. Cause obviously the team is named after his family, but with him gone, I think this adds some credibility and a pillar of uh, expertise and, and competence within that organization. And again, I don't think his role is going to be particularly involved. I think this is largely, uh, a symbolic role for him. But I think any access your drivers can get to him just in terms of asking questions or getting advice. That's a good thing. Totally a good thing.
1: Yeah, You know, I've been struggling with something that the the past couple of days, since I saw the, the, this announcement that Jensen would be taking this, uh, you know, advisor role on that. uh, I started just thinking about the whole sale to uh, to a capital and, you know, Capito on this, this new regime coming in to run the team. And I I thought it was really, you know, I I have real sort of difficulty kind of getting my mind around this one that uh, I was trying to put myself in the shoes of uh, Sir Frank Williams and thinking, well, you know, how do you deal with the situation when you've taken the team that you've run in Formula One for 43 years or whatever it was, and the only way that I can now move my own team forward is to let somebody else do it? (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> you know and, and i have not been able to 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 really get my mind around it and uh, i i mean they, they, i think they did everything that they could possibly do to to try and uh, get this team competitive again but i think ultimately i think they realized that uh, that that they were just maybe at the end of the road and i think they realized that the only way that they could save their team was to 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 stand aside and and let somebody else have a crack at it and you know, uh, you know, Durelton came in and all credit to them. I mean, they're keeping the name, they're keeping the heritage. And I mean, I hope that uh, the the name Williams stays around in Formula One for for a long, long time. I mean, they did some uh, fantastic things in in Formula One, but uh, that is certainly one that I have not been able to mentally solve uh, just yet. But uh, anyways, that's it, Mark. That's all I've got uh, for, for the show this week. I, I think, uh, well, I mean, we're running up now on our, our usual time. You know, it's really kind of funny since we, we partnered up now several months ago that uh you know I was doing shows myself about 45 to 50 minutes long but you know n- now we're pushing to you know 90 minutes on every show which you would kind of expect you know when, when I have a turn speaking you have a turn speaking naturally the <laughs> the length of the show is almost doubled which uh you know seems to seems to be a you know, a really really good thing you know numbers have gone up so some we're doing something right here let's put it that way totally. Yeah. Anyways, uh, like I say, that's all we've got for, for this week. I mean, uh, just to, before we go, Mark, how close are we now? Uh, I, I mean, by the time, obviously, everybody starts listening to this, uh, you know, these first couple of test sessions will be in the bag. But what is the counter at now officially? Do you still have that handy? It was it was like an hour and something before we sat down. Yeah.
0: So you probably noticed I was distracted. I was looking in the background. So as of na- nine minutes, nine minutes nine and 48 minutes. seconds until preseason Winter testing begins.
1: Yeah, well, should, should we tease people and hang on for another nine minutes? No, we won't. We'll we'll, we'll let them go. <laughs>
0: Actually, we've got MotoGP corner, so let me just uh, let me just give us fifteen. I'm joking, uh, 15 minutes. And by the way, I know people are going to ask. So. Um, obviously, I'm on Zoom calls, on Teams calls all day. Yeah, and for whatever it. reason, I can't get my virtual background to work. So I actually put that canvas behind me. So when I sit like this, it kind of looks like I have a virtual background going. <laughs> but that, if you're wondering, is Dubai. And I took that photo a few years ago in awesome. my showcase. And I am desperately trying to burn nine minutes and 45 seconds here. So let me take you on a route. Uh, 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 a tour of my office. That is my Medicom Bear brick. And up above that is a gigantic Funko Pop of the notorious B.I.G. And earlier today we we're talking about the fantastic Christopher Wallace documentary that is on netflix and you should probably watch it but i'm out of energy we're not going to make it in another
1: nine minutes (laughs) there you go we'll let everybody off easy after uh, only sitting around for the past uh, 90 minutes anyways uh, thank you all very much uh, for downloading listening to the show checking us out on youtube if you want to get in touch by all means uh, do so you can reach us on the email at uh, scuderiaf1pod at gmail.com or on Twitter at f one pod And that's it. That's a wrap. Have a great weekend. Enjoy the first couple of test sessions. We'll be back next week to break that down, plus all the latest F1 news. And until then, take care and stay in touch. Bye for now.